Author's Note and Section 1 of Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Yet Again by Max Beerbohm. Author's Note. Till I gave myself the task of making a little selection from what I had written since last I formed a book of essays, I had no notion that I had put, as it were, my eggs into so many baskets. The Saturday Review, the New Quarterly, the New Liberal Review, Vanity Fair, the Daily Mail, Literature, the Traveller, the Pall Mall Magazine, the May Book, the Souvenir Book of Charing Cross Hospital Bazaar, the Cornhill Magazine, Harper's Magazine, the Anglo-Saxon Review. Oof! But the sigh of relief that I heave at the end of this list is accompanied by a smile of thanks to the various authorities for letting me use here what they were so good as to require. M.B. Section 1. The Fire If I were seeing over a house, and found in every room an iron cage let into the wall, and were told by the caretaker that these cages were for me to keep lions in, I think I should open my eyes rather wide. Yet nothing seems to me more natural than a fire in the grate— Doubtless, when I began to walk, one of my first excursions was to the fender, that I might gaze more nearly at the live thing roaring and raging behind it. And I dare say I dimly wondered by what blessed dispensation this creature was allowed in a domain so peaceful as my nursery. I do not think I ever needed to be warned against scaling the fender, I knew by instinct that the creature within it was dangerous, fiercer still than the cat, which had once strayed into the room and scratched me for my advances. As I grew older, I ceased to wonder at the creature's presence and learned to call it the fire, quite lightly. There are so many queer things in the world that we have no time to go on wondering at the queerness of the thing we see habitually. It is not that these things are in themselves less queer than they at first seemed to us. It is that our vision of them has been dimmed. We are lucky when, by some chance, we see again, for a fleeting moment, this thing or that, as we saw it when it first came within our ken. We are in the habit of saying that first impressions are best and that we must approach every question with an open mind. But we shirk the logical conclusion that we were wiser in our infancy than we are now. Make yourself even as a little child, we often say, but recommending the process on moral rather than on intellectual grounds, and inwardly preening ourselves all the while on having put away childish things, as though clarity of vision were not one of them. I look around the room I am writing in, a pleasant room, and my own, yet how irresponsive, how smug, and lifeless. The pattern of the wallpaper blamelessly repeats itself from wainscot to cornice. 
and the pictures are immobile and changeless within their glazed frames, faint, flat mimicries of life. The chairs and tables are just as their carpenter fashioned them, and stand with stiff obedience just where they have been posted. On one side of the room, encased in coverings of cloth and leather, are myriads of words which to some people, but not to me, are a fair substitute for human company. All around me, in fact, are the products of modern civilization. But in the whole room there are but three things living. Myself, my dog, and the fire in my grate. And of these lives the third is very much the most intensely vivid. My dog is descended, doubtless, from prehistoric wolves, but you could hardly decipher his pedigree on his mild, domesticated face. My dog is as tame as his master, in whose veins flows the blood of the old cavemen. But time has not tamed fire. Fire is as wild a thing as when Prometheus snatched it from the Empyrean. Fire in my grate is as fierce and terrible a thing as when it was lit by my ancestors, night after night, at the mouths of their caves, to scare away the ancestors of my dog, and my dog regards it with the old wonder and misgiving. Even in his sleep he opens ever again one eye to see that we are in no danger." and the fire glowers and roars through its bars at him, with the scorn that a wild beast must needs have for a tame one. You are free, it rages, and yet you do not spring at that man's throat and tear him limb from limb and make a meal of him, and, gazing at me, it licks its red lips, and I, laughing good-humouredly, rise and give the monster a shovelful of its proper food, which it leaps at and noisily devours. Fire is the only one of the elements that inspires awe. We breathe air, tread earth, bathe in water. Fire alone we approach with deference, and it is the only one of the elements that is always alert, always good to watch. We do not see the air we breathe, except sometimes in London, and who shall say that the sight is pleasant. We do not see the earth revolving, and the trees and other vegetables that are put forth by it come up so slowly that there is no fun in watching them. One is apt to lose patience with the good earth, and to hanker after a sight of those multitudinous fires, whereover it is, after all, but a thin and comparatively recent crust. Water, when we get it in the form of a river, is pleasant to watch for a minute or so, after which period the regularity of its movement becomes as tedious as stagnation. It is only a whole seaful of water that can rival fire in variety and in loveliness, but even the spectacle of sea at its very best, say in an Atlantic storm, is less thrilling than the spectacle of one building ablaze. And for the rest, the sea has its hours of dullness and monotony, even when it is not wholly calm. Whereas, in the grate, even a quite little fire never ceases to be amusing and inspiring, 
until you let it out. As much fire as would correspond with a handful of earth or a tumbler full of water is yet a joy to the eyes and a lively suggestion of grandeur. The other elements, even as presented in huge samples, impress us as less august than fire. Fire alone, according to the legend, was brought down from heaven. The rest were here from the dim outset. When we call a thing earthy, we impute cloddishness. By watery, we imply insipidness. Airy is for something trivial. Fiery has always a noble significance. It denotes such things as faith, courage, genius. Earth lies heavy, and air is void, and water flows down, but flames aspire, flying back towards the heaven they came from. They typify for us the spirit of man as apart from aught that is gross in him. They are the symbol of purity, of triumph over corruption. Water, air, earth can all harbor corruption, but where flames are or have been, there is innocence. Our love of fire comes partly, doubtless, from our natural love of destruction for destruction's sake. Fire is savage, and so, even after all these centuries, are we, at heart. Our civilization is but as the aforesaid crust that encloses the old planetary flames. To destroy is still the strongest instinct of our nature. Nature is still red in tooth and claw. Though she has begun to make fine flourishes with toothbrush and nail scissors, even the mild dog on my hearth-rug has been known to behave like a wolf to his own species. Scratch his master, and you will find the caveman. But the scratch must be a sharp one. I am thickly veneered. Outwardly, I am as gentle as you, gentle reader. And one reason for our delight in fire is that there is no humbug about flames. They are frankly, primevally savage. But this is not, I am glad to say, the sole reason we have a sense of good and evil. I do not pretend that it carries us very far. It is but the toothbrush and nail scissors that we flourish. Our innate instincts, not this acquired sense, are what the world really hinges on. But this acquired sense is an integral part of our minds, and we revere fire because we have come to regard it as especially the foe of evil, as a means for destroying weeds, not flowers, a destroyer of wicked cities, not of good ones. The idea of hell, as inculcated in the books given to me when I was a child, never really frightened me at all. I conceived the possibility of a hell in which were eternal flames to destroy everyone who had not been good. But a hell whose flames were eternally impotent to destroy these people, a hell where evil was to go on writhing, yet thriving for ever and ever, seemed to me, even at that age, too patently absurd to be appalling. 
nor indeed do i think that to the more credulous children in england can the idea of eternal burning have ever been quite so forbidding as their nurses meant it to be credulity is but a form of incaution i as i have said never had any wish to play with fire but most english children are strongly attracted and are much less afraid of fire than of dark eternal darkness with a biting east wind were to the english fancy a far more fearful prospect than eternal flames the notion of these flames arose in italy where heat is no luxury and shadows are lurked in and breezes prayed for in england the sun even at its strongest is a weak vessel true we grumble whenever its radiance is a trifle less watery than usual but that is precisely because we are a people whose nature the sun has not mellowed a dour people like all northerners ever ready to make the worst of things inwardly we love the sun and long for it to come nearer to us and to come more often and it is partly because this craving is unsatisfied that we cower so fondly over our open hearths our fires are makeshifts for sunshine autumn after autumn we see the swallows gathering in the sky and in the osier isle we hear their noise and our hearts sink happy selfish little birds gathering so lightly to fly whither we cannot follow you will you not this once forego the lands of your desire shall not the grief of the old time follow do winter with us this once we will strew all england every morning with bread-crumbs for you will you but stay and help us to play at summer but the delicate cruel rogues pay no heed to us skimming sharplier than ever in pursuit of gnats as the hour draws near for their long flight over gnatless seas only one swallow have i ever known to relent it had built its nest under the eaves of a cottage that belonged to a friend of mine a man who loved birds he had a power of making birds trust him they would come at his call circling round him perching on his shoulder eating from his hand one of the swallows would come too from his nest under the eaves as the summer wore on he grew quite tame and when summer waned and the other swallows flew away this one lingered day after day fluttering dubiously over the threshold of the cottage presently as the air grew chilly he built a new nest for himself under the mantelpiece in my friend's study and every morning so soon as the fire burned brightly he would flutter down to perch on the fender and bask in the light and warmth of the coals but after a few weeks he began to ail possibly because the study was a small one and he could not get in it the exercise that he needed more probably because of the draughts. My friend's wife, who was very clever with her needle, made for the swallow a little jacket of red flannel, and sought to divert his mind by teaching him to perform a few simple tricks. For a while he seemed to regain his spirits, but presently he moped more than ever, crouching nearer than ever to the fire, 
and sidelong, blinking, dim, weak reproaches at his disappointed master and mistress. One swallow, as the adage truly says, does not make a summer. So this one's mistress hurriedly made for him a little overcoat of seal-skin, wearing which, in a muffled cage, he was personally conducted by his master straight through to Sicily. There he was nursed back to health and liberated on a sunny plain. He never returned to his English home, but the nest he built under the mantelpiece is still preserved, in case he should come at last. When the sun's rays slant down upon your grate, then the fire blanches and blenches, cowers, crumbles, and collapses. It cannot compete with its archetype. It cannot suffice a sun-steeped swallow, or ripen a plum, or parch the carpet. Yet, in its modest way, it is to your room what the sun is to the world, and where, during the greater part of the year, would you be without it? I do not wonder that the poor, when they have to choose between fuel and food, choose fuel. Food nourishes the body, but fuel, warming the body, warms the soul, too. I do not wonder that the hearth has been regarded from time immemorial as the centre and used as the symbol of the home. I like the social tradition that we must not poke a fire in a friend's drawing-room unless our friendship dates back full seven years. It rests, evidently, this tradition, on the sentiment that a fire is a thing sacred to the members of the household in which it burns. I dare say the fender has a meaning as well as a use, and is as the rail round the altar. In the new utopia these hearths will all have been raised, of course, as demoralizing relics of an age when people went in for privacy, and were not always thinking exclusively about the state. Such heat as may be needed to prevent us from catching colds, whereby our vitality would be lowered and our usefulness to the state impaired, will be supplied through hot water pipes, white enameled, the supply being strictly regulated from the municipal waterworks. Or has Mr. Wells arranged that the sun shall always be shining on us? I have mislaid my copy of the book. Anyhow, fires and hearths will have to go. Let us make the most of them while we may. Personally, though I appreciate the radiance of a family fire, I give preference to a fire that burns for myself alone. And dearest of all to me is a fire that burns thus in the house of another. I find an inalienable magic in my bedroom fire when I am staying with friends, and it is at bedtime that the spell is strongest. Good night says my host, shaking my hand warmly on the threshold. You've everything you want? Everything, I assure him. Good night. Good night. Good night. And I close my door, close my eyes, heave a long sigh, open my eyes, set down the candle, draw the armchair close to the fire, my fire, 
sink down and am at peace with nothing to mar my happiness except the feeling that it is too good to be true at such moments i never see in my fire any likeness to a wild beast it roars me as gently as a sucking dove and is as kind and cordial as my host and hostess and the other people in the house and yet i do not have to say anything to it i do not have to make myself agreeable to it it lavishes its warmth on me asking nothing in return for fifteen mortal hours or so with few and brief intervals i have been making myself agreeable saying the right thing asking the apt question exhibiting the proper shade of mild or acute surprise smiling the appropriate smile or laughing just so long and just so loud as the occasion seemed to demand if i were naturally a brilliant and copious talker i suppose that to stay in another's house would be no strain on me i should be able to impose myself on my host and hostess and their guests without any effort and at the end of the day retire quite unfatigued pleasantly flushed with the effect of my own magnetism alas there is no question of my imposing myself i can repay hospitality only by strict attention to the humble arduous process of making myself agreeable when i go up to dress for dinner i have always a strong impulse to go to bed and sleep off my fatigue and it is only by exerting all my will-power that i can array myself for the final labours to wit making myself agreeable to some man or woman for a minute or two before dinner to two women during dinner to men after dinner then again to women in the drawing-room and then once more to men in the smoking-room it is a dog's life but one has to have suffered before one gets the full savour out of joy and i do not grumble at the price i have to pay for the sensation of basking at length in solitude and the glow of my own fireside too tired to undress too tired to think i am more content to watch the noble and ever-changing pageant of the fire the finest part of this spectacle is surely when the flames sink and gradually the red-gold caverns are revealed gorgeous mysterious with inmost recesses of white heat it is often thus that my fire welcomes me when the long day's task is done after i have gazed long into its depths i close my eyes to rest them opening them again with a start whenever a coal shifts its place or some belated little tongue of flame spurts forth with a hiss vaguely i liken myself to the watchman one sees by night in london wherever a road is up huddled half awake in his tiny cabin of wood with a cresset of live coal before him i have come down in the world and am a night watchman and i find the life as pleasant as i had always thought it must be except when i let the fire out and awake shivering shivering i awake in the twilight of dawn 
ashes white and grey some rusty cinders a crag or so of coal are all that is left over from last night's splendour grey is the lawn beneath my window and little ghosts of rabbits are nibbling and hobbling there but anon the east will be red and ere i wake the sky will be blue and the grass quite green again and my fire will have arisen from its ashes a crackling and comfortable phoenix End of section 1